Galba, Part One, from the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson, and edited by T. Forrester. Galba, Part 1 The race of the Caesars became extinct in Nero, an event prognosticated by various signs, two of which were particularly significant. Formerly, when Livia, after her marriage with Augustus, was making a visit to her villa at Veii, an eagle flying by, let drop upon her lap a hen, with a sprig of laurel in her mouth, just as she had seized it. Livia gave orders to have the hen taken care of, and the sprig of laurel set, and the hen reared such a numerous brood of chickens that the villa, to this day, is called the villa of the hens. The laurel groves flourished so much that the Caesars procured thence the boughs and crowns they bore at their triumphs. It was also their constant custom to plant others on the same spot, immediately after a triumph. And it was observed that, a little before the death of each prince, the tree which had been set by him died away. But in the last year of Nero, the whole plantation of laurels perished to the very roots, and the hens all died. About the same time, the temple of the Caesars being struck with lightning, the heads of all the statues in it fell off at once, and Augustus's sceptre was dashed from his hands. Nero was succeeded by Galba, who was not in the remotest degree allied to the family of the Caesars, but, without doubt, of very noble extraction, being descended from a great and ancient family. For he always used to put amongst his other titles, upon the basis of his statues, his being great-grandson to Quintus Catulus Capitolinus. And when he came to be emperor, he set up the images of his ancestors in the hall of the palace, according to the inscriptions on which he carried up his pedigree on the father's side to Jupiter, and by the mother's to Pacify, the wife of Minos. To give even a short account of the whole family would be tedious, I shall therefore only slightly notice that branch of it from which he was descended. Why or whence the first of the Sulpicii, who had the cognomen of Galba, was so called, is uncertain. Some were of opinion that it was because he set fire to a city in Spain, after he had a long time attacked it to no purpose, with torches dipped in the gum called Galbanum. Others said he was so named, because in a lingering disease he made use of it as a remedy, wrapped up in wool. Others, on account of his being prodigiously corpulent, such a one being called, in the language of the Gauls, Galba, or, on the contrary, because he was of a slender habit of body, like those insects which breed in a sort of oak, and are called Galbi. Sergius Galba, a person of consular rank, and the most eloquent man of his time, gave a lustre to the family. 
History relates that when he was propraetor of Spain, he perfidiously put to the sword 30,000 Lusitanians, and by that means gave occasion to the war of Viriatus. His grandson being incensed against Julius Caesar, whose lieutenant he had been in Gaul, because he was through him disappointed of the consulship, joined with Cassius and Brutus in the conspiracy against him, for which he was condemned by the Pedian law. From him were descended the grandfather and father of the Emperor Galba. The grandfather was more celebrated for his application to study than for any figure he made in the government, for he rose no higher than the praetorship, but published a large and not uninteresting history. His father attained to the consulship. He was a short man and hump-backed, but a tolerable orator and an industrious pleader. He was twice married. The first of his wives was Mummia Achaica, daughter of Catulus, and great-granddaughter of Lucius Mummius, who sacked Corinth. And the other, Livia Ocalina, a very rich and beautiful woman, by whom it is supposed he was courted for the nobleness of his descent. They say that she was further encouraged to persevere in her advances, by an incident which evinced the great ingenuousness of his disposition. Upon her pressing her suit, he took an opportunity, when they were alone, of stripping off his toga and showing her the deformity of his person, that he might not be thought to impose on her. He had by Achaica two sons, Caius and Sergius. The elder of these, Caius, having very much reduced his estate, retired from town and being prohibited by Tiberius from standing for a proconsulship in his year put an end to his own life. The Emperor Sergius Galba was born in the consulship of Marcus Valerius Messala at Nias Lentulus, upon the ninth of the Calends of January, in a villa standing upon a hill near Terracina, on the left-hand side of the road to Fundi. Being adopted by his stepmother, he assumed the name of Livius, with the cognomen of Archella, and changed his prinomen for he afterwards used that of Lucius instead of Sergius, until he arrived at the imperial dignity. It is well known that when he came once, amongst other boys of his own age, to pay his respects to Augustus, the latter, pinching his cheek, said to him, And thou, child, too, wilt taste our imperial dignity. Tiberius, likewise, being told that he would come to be emperor, but at an advanced age, exclaimed, Let him live then, since that does not concern me. When his grandfather was offering sacrifice to avert some ill omen from lightning, the entrails of the victim were snatched out of his hand by an eagle, and carried off into an oak tree loaded with acorns. Upon this the soothsayers said that the family would come to be masters of the empire, but not until many years had elapsed, at which he, smiling, said, Aye, when a mule comes to bear a foal. When Galba first declared against Nero, nothing gave him so much confidence of success as a mule's happening at that time to have a foal. And whilst all others were shocked at the occurrence as a most inauspicious prodigy, he alone regarded it as a most fortunate omen, calling to mind the sacrifice and saying of his grandfather, 
When he took upon him the manly habit, he dreamt that the goddess Fortune said to him, I stand before your door weary, and unless I am speedily admitted, I shall fall into the hands of the first who comes to seize me. On his awaking, when the door of the house was opened, he found a brazen statue of the goddess, above a cubit long, close to the threshold, which he carried with him to Tusculum, where he used to pass the summer season. And having consecrated it in an apartment of his house, he ever after worshipped it with a monthly sacrifice and an anniversary vigil. Though but a very young man, he kept up an ancient but obsolete custom, and now nowhere observed, except in his own family, which was to have his freedmen and slaves appear in a body before him twice a day, morning and evening, to offer him their salutations. Amongst other liberal studies, he applied himself to the law. He married Lepida, by whom he had two sons, but the mother and children all dying, he continued a widower. Nor could he be prevailed upon to marry again, not even Agrippina herself, at that time left a widow by the death of Domitius, who had employed all her blandishments to allure him to her embraces, while he was a married man. Insomuch that Lepta's mother, when in company with several married women, rebuked her for it, and even went so far as to cuff her. Most of all, he courted the Empress Livia, by whose favour, while she was living, he made a considerable figure, and narrowly missed being enriched by the will which he left at her death, in which she distinguished him from the rest of the legatees by a legacy of fifty millions of sesterces. But because the sum was expressed in figures, and not in words at length, it was reduced by her heir, Tiberius, to five hundred thousand, and even this he never received. Filling the great offices before the age required for it by law, during his praetorship, at the celebration of games in honour of the goddess Flora, he presented the new spectacle of elephants walking upon ropes. He was then governor of the province of Aquitania for near a year, and soon afterwards took the consulship in the usual course, and held it for six months. It so happened that he succeeded Lucius Domitius, the father of Nero, and was succeeded by Selvius Otho, father to the emperor of that name, so that his holding it between the sons of these two men looked like a presage of his future advancement to the empire. Being appointed by Caius Caesar to supersede Gaetulicus in his command, the day after his joining the legions he put a stop to their plaudits in a public spectacle by issuing an order that they should keep their hands under their cloaks. Immediately upon which, the following verse became very common in the camp. Disque miles militare, galba est, non gatulicus. Learn, soldier, now in arms to use your hands, tis galba, not gatulicus, commands. With equal strictness, he would allow of no petitions for leave of absence from the camp. He hardened the soldiers, both old and young, by constant exercise. And having quickly reduced within their own limits the barbarians who had made inroads into Gaul, upon Caius's coming into Germany, he
he so far recommended himself and his army to that emperor's approbation, that, amongst the innumerable troops drawn from all the provinces of the empire, none met with higher commendation or greater rewards from him. He likewise distinguished himself by heading an escort with a shield in his hand, and running at the side of the emperor's chariot twenty miles together. Upon the news of Caius's death, though many earnestly pressed him to lay hold of that opportunity of seizing the empire, he chose rather to be quiet. On this account he was in great favour with Claudius, and being received into the number of his friends, stood so high in his good opinion that the expedition to Britain was for some time suspended, because he was suddenly seized with a slight indisposition. He governed Africa as proconsul for two years, being chosen out of the regular course to restore order in the province, which was in great disorder from civil dissensions and the alarms of the barbarians. His administration was distinguished by great strictness and equity, even in matters of small importance. A soldier upon some expedition, being charged with selling, in a great scarcity of corn, a bushel of wheat, which was all he had left, for a hundred denarii, he forbade him to be relieved by anybody when he came to be in want himself, and accordingly he died of famine. When sitting in judgment, a cause being brought before him about some beast of burden, the ownership of which was claimed by two persons, the evidence being slight on both sides, and it being difficult to come at the truth, he ordered the beast to be led to a pond at which he had used to be watered, with his head muffled up, and the covering being there removed, that he should be the property of the person whom he followed of his own accord, after drinking. For his achievements, both at this time in Africa and formerly in Germany, he received the triumphal ornaments and three sacerdotal appointments, one among the fifteen, another in the College of Titius, and a third amongst the Augustals. And from that time to the middle of Nero's reign, he lived for the most part in retirement. He never went abroad so much as to take the air, without a carriage attending him, in which there was a million of sesterces in gold ready at hand, until at last, at the time he was living in the town of Fundi, the province of Hispania Terraconensis was offered him. After his arrival in the province, whilst he was sacrificing in a temple, a boy who attended with a censor became all on a sudden grey-headed. This incident was regarded by some as a token of an approaching revolution in the government, and that an old man would succeed a young one. That is, that he would succeed Nero. And not long after, a thunderbolt falling into a lake in Cantabria, twelve axes were found in it, a manifest sign of the supreme power. He governed the province during eight years, his administration being of an uncertain and capricious character. At first he was active, vigorous, and indeed excessively severe in the punishment of offenders. For, a money-dealer having committed some fraud in the way of his business, he cut off his hands and nailed them to his counter. Another, who had poisoned an orphan to whom he was guardian and next heir to the estate, he crucified. On this delinquent imploring the protection of the law, 
and crying out that he was a Roman citizen, he affected to afford him some alleviation, and to mitigate his punishment, by a mark of honour, ordered a cross higher than usual and painted white to be erected for him. But, by degrees, he gave himself up to a life of indolence and inactivity, from the fear of giving Nero any occasion of jealousy, and because, as he used to say, nobody was obliged to render an account of their leisure hours. He was holding a court of justice on the circuit at New Carthage when he received intelligence of the insurrection in Gaul, and while the lieutenant of Aquitania was soliciting his assistance, letters were brought from Vindex requesting him to assert the rights of mankind and put himself at their head to relieve them from the tyranny of Nero. Without any long demur, he accepted the invitation from a mixture of fear and hope, for he had discovered that private orders had been sent by Nero to his procurators in the province to get him dispatched, and he was encouraged to the enterprise as well by several auspices and omens, as by the prophecy of a young woman of good family, the more so because the priest of Jupiter at Clunia, admonished by a dream, had discovered in the recesses of the temple some verses similar to those in which she had delivered her prophecy. These had also been uttered by a girl under divine inspiration, about two hundred years before. The import of the verses was, that in time Spain should give the world a lord and master. Taking his seat on the tribunal, therefore, as if there was no other business than the manumitting of slaves, he had the effigies of a number of persons who had been condemned and put to death by Nero, set up before him, whilst a noble youth stood by, who had been banished, and whom he had purposely sent for from one of the neighbouring Balearic Isles and lamenting the condition of the times, and being thereupon unanimously saluted by the title of emperor, he publicly declared himself only the lieutenant of the senate and people of Rome. Then, shutting the courts, he levied legions and auxiliary troops among the provincials, besides his veteran army consisting of one legion, two wings of horse, and three cohorts. Out of the military leaders most distinguished for age and prudence, he formed a kind of senate, with whom to advise upon all matters of importance, as often as occasion should require. He likewise chose several young men of the equestrian order, who were to be allowed the privilege of wearing the gold ring, and being called the reserve, should mount guard before his bedchamber instead of the legionary soldiers. He likewise issued proclamations throughout the provinces of the empire, exhorting all to rise in arms unanimously, and aid the common cause by all the ways and means in their power. About the same time, in fortifying a town which he had pitched upon for a military post, a ring was found, of antique workmanship, in the stone of which was engraved the goddess Victory with a trophy. Presently after, a ship of Alexandria arrived at Dertosa, loaded with arms, without any person to steer it, or so much as a single sailor or passenger on board. 
From this instant nobody entertained the least doubt, but the war upon which they were entering was just and honourable, and favoured likewise by the gods. When all on a sudden the whole design was exposed to failure, one of the two wings of horse, repenting of the violation of their oath to Nero, attempted to desert him upon his approach to the camp, and were with some difficulty kept in their duty. And some slaves, who had been presented to him by a freedman of Nero's, on purpose to murder him, had liked to have killed him as he went through a narrow passage to the bath. Being overheard to encourage one another not to lose the opportunity, they were called to an account concerning it, and recourse being had to the torture, a confession was extorted from them. End of Galba Part 1 Recording by Andrew Coleman